Stand with me then, and we'll read uh, John chapter 12, uh, verses 1 to 11. John 12, 1 to 11. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving. But Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of costly perfume on pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? Now he said that's not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And, that, and as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore, Jesus said, Let her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of the burial. For you always will have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see also Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned them to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. Father, we are looking forward today to spending time in in John chapter 12, and you inspired John to write the things that he did um, 2,000 years ago, and we're grateful for what you gave him, because we have so much to learn from him, and uh, John is one of the most uh, powerful books in the whole Bible, Lord, in terms of teaching us, and you, you use this gospel to transform people's lives over and over again, and to help people believe that you, you were who you said you were. Uh, we just pray for the, what our hearts and minds have to be prepared to hear today. Um, today is going to be um, very practical, I think, and very relatable to us in terms of the way we respond to you. And I just uh, ask, Lord, that we are prepared to hear your truth in Christ's name. Amen. chapters of John, we have seen that everywhere Jesus went, he caused controversy. It didn't matter what town he walked into, what city, what region, um, whether it was on the seaside or in a big city like Jerusalem, there was always mixed reactions to who he claimed he was and the things that he did. People either loved him and devoted themselves to him, or they were hostile to him and hated him. And the raising of Lazarus, in John chapter 11, which you looked at over the last four months, didn't change anybody's reaction to him um, in the big picture. I mean, it actually further perpetuated their, either their love for him or their hate for him. Um, we saw in 1145 that after the raising of Lazarus, many believed, so they were devoted and loved him, but we also saw the Jewish leadership and others who hated him. So as we begin a chapter 12 today, uh, we're going to take a closer look at five different reactions from five different groups of people in response to the miracle that Jesus did in Bethany. And I want you to see that, as Ecclesiastes says, nothing is new under the sun. Uh, the attitudes towards him back then are still the attitudes that we see today. And uh, I would like to just try to flesh those out for you to see how practical John is for our, our culture as we face it in Okotoks. 
2016. But before we dive in, I just want to give you a recap of last week to get your minds in the flow of things. I remember after he raised Lazarus from the dead, the Sanhedrin uh, plotted to execute Jesus. And upon hearing that there was a bounty on his head, uh, Jesus had to flee from Bethany and travel about 12 to 15 miles to the Ephraim, which is near the wilderness. And we don't know how long he was there exactly, but we did know that they understood that the the stay there would not be permanent because Passover was approaching. And as a Jew, they were obligated, or commanded, I should say, to obey the Mosaic law, which was to observe the Sabbath yearly. So they knew they couldn't stay there for long. They had to come back. Well, in verse 1, in chapter 12, we now see that it was time for Jesus and the disciples to leave Ephraim and return to the Jerusalem area because the Passover was near. It says in verse 1 that Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Notice in verse 1 how the the village of Bethany is defined. It's uh, it's interesting. It says it was the place where uh, Lazarus had been raised from the dead by Jesus. It took on a new definition. I mean, the, the definition of Bethany in chapter 11, verse 18 was a place that was two miles from Jerusalem. So Bethany 11, 18 was just two miles from Jerusalem, but now Bethany was this place where Jesus performed this amazing miracle. Uh, It was the resurrection of Lazarus basically put uh, Bethany on the map. And we can see this in verse 9, for example. It says there that the large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there and that they might also uh, come not only for Jesus' sake, but they might see Lazarus. So the people coming to Passover a week early to purify themselves these huge, huge crowds made it all the way to this little town, this little village in Bethany, just to see Jesus and just to see Lazarus. They wanted to see, was, is this actually true? Did this actually happen? So Bethany, I mean, there's no way people would have been flocking there um, the Passover before. I mean, this, this raising of Lazarus changed the, the, the dynamics of the city, or the, the town, I should say. You know, it's interesting that today, Talking about, uh, talking about Bethany being put on the map. Today, in Israel, if you go there, I looked it up on uh, Google Images just for curiosity, you could actually go to Bethany today, and there's a plaque supposedly where the tomb of Lazarus was. So to this day, people like pilgrims go to Israel, and they head there to take pictures of this amazing tomb where Lazarus was supposedly buried. I asked Peter uh, the other day, is that really the same tomb? He's like, well, we don't know for sure, but uh, anyway, it's good for uh, business. <laughs> but it's, uh, He didn't say that, but that's my interpretation of it. It's no worse than going to, uh, this is a uh, side tangent, but I remember going to uh, Scotland, to Stirling Castle, where William Wallace from Braveheart was supposedly, well, actually, where he actually like uh, did battles and actually stayed. And what's interesting, they had this stone statue of Mel Gibson with freedom, with this axe in his hand, his ball and chain in his feet. It was just the worst horrific thing. They just capitalized on Hollywood's uh, <laughs> movie to put some crappy little statue there. Mm-hmm. I heard it's been taken down since because too many Scottish people complained about it. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> but it, for very likely, though, this tomb of Lazarus could be legitimate in, in Israel. Something I'd be worth, I'd go see if I went there. Okay, so back to the text, so back to what's important. In verse 2, though, we learn that when, when Jesus and the disciples arrived in Bethany, we learned that there was a supper prepared for him there. And it was a supper that was made in honor of him. It says there, they made him a supper there. So the, the whole purpose of the supper was to honor Jesus. 
Not Lazarus, but Jesus. Now, at first glance, it appears that it might be in Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' home, because we see Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in verse 2, 3, and 4. Um, some people think that this is legitimate, and it actually was at their house. But if you like to write cross-references down, Matthew 26 and Mark 14, both have the same, supposedly the same account of a parallel passage where we see almost the identical <coughs> things happening. A woman coming with, with perfume, anointing Jesus' feet, and, or his, and his head and his body. We also see this, this, this uh, Judas and the disciples complaining about uh, this 300, 300 um, denarii being wasted on him. And we see Jesus talking about the poor always being around them, but not, uh, but not him. We have all these parallels. So it would seem, though, in that passage, if that was the same event as here, that we learned it was at Simon the leper's house. So it's called Simon the leper, not Simon the, the, who had leprosy at that moment, because they wouldn't be allowed in his house if he had leprosy. Simon the leper meaning he used to have leprosy, but now he was cured. And who would be the one to cure him? <laughs> and that day, of course, Jesus. So they're meeting, if, if it's the same account, which some commentators believe it is, then it's likely at Simon the leper's house and not Mary and Martha and Lazarus' home. And that will take on a little bit of significance, I think, as we look through this passage. Um, so that's the, those are the two potential places. It's probably one of those two houses. But regardless of whose house it was, I don't want you to miss the responses that Jesus received as a result of this miracle. Three were positive, two were negative. And we're good. the positive ones came from Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. We see Lazarus listening to Jesus. We see Martha serving Jesus. And we see Mary worshiping Jesus. The negative comes from Judas, who's hypocritical towards Jesus, and the religious leaders who are hostile haters of Jesus. So as we listen today, hopefully uh, we'll be able to identify with all of these individuals and uh, and hopefully uh, be more like Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Okay, I think this week's message, I'll probably get through the first three. We'll look at the, um, the first the positive reactions to Jesus. I don't think we'll have enough time to get through all five. And I'll do that next week. But we'll see how time goes. Let's first look at Lazarus' response to Jesus. In verse 2, we'll read it. It says, So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Lazarus chose, in his, in his response to Jesus for what he had done, to spend time listening to him, spending time reclining with him at the table. Notice he's defined as, there as one of those. That means that he was one of many guests. Uh, we know for sure the 12 disciples were there, potentially Simon, if it was his house, and Mary and Martha. So there's at least 16 people there. there. Everybody would be doing different things and choosing different ways of functioning within the home. Lazarus chose to recline with Jesus and listen to him. He took the position that his sister Mary had done at an earlier dinner months prior. Remember that he decided, she decided to sit at the feet of Jesus and listen to him. And here we have uh, Lazarus now, not at the feet of Jesus, but reclining at his side. So the response is the same as Mary, just at a different place on his body. But it's a great, great visual to see. And you can imagine the conversation that day. Imagine if Simon the leper was there, and Lazarus was there together. And they're talking about and comparing their stories about how their life was so desperate and they were, they were both basically 
well, especially Simon would have been ostracized from the community. He was, he was like Lazarus in that he was dead, but, he was, but through leprosy. I mean, he was the walking dead, really. To have leprosy, you'd be, it's like a walking death because you're completely excommunicated from family and from the culture. <coughs> so imagine these stories that these guys went back and forth about their sickness and their health and how Jesus had come in and just through a command of his voice and through a touch, completely healed these guys and restored them back to, to, to community and back to life with those they loved. And no doubt much of that night, they spent time listening to Jesus teach. I mean, every time you were on Jesus, he was teaching. He was teaching them likely how to understand the Christian life, how it was supposed to be lived out, and probably answering a lot of the questions that they had about maybe the Old Testament understandings of things and, and what it was like to be a, a, a new covenant follower of Jesus. Um, so anyway, it had been just an amazing night to be there, a night that you wouldn't want to have missed if you were, had the opportunity to go. And for many of you in here, um, you might relate to Lazarus a lot. See, his way of showing love for Jesus was to devote himself to spending time with him and listening to him. Your way of showing love to Jesus might be the same way. You might like, enjoy sitting under the word of God, uh, sitting here today and listening to me uh, speak on behalf of the Lord. Um, many of you might not, but you're here anyway. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, but for, for everybody, it looks different in how they appropriate love towards Christ. Um, and this is important because, um, you know, um, Lazarus, Jesus himself said, you know, for you will always have the poor with you, but you not always have me. In other words, there was a time when Lazarus was going to not have Jesus anymore. He didn't know that, but there was a time when he was not going to have him anymore. So he was gleaning from him as much as he could at that moment. Now, it will look different for Lazarus and you and I, because uh, Lazarus had the physical presence of Jesus Right? We don't have that. We have the Holy Spirit who teaches us through the scriptures. So it's, it's different in that way, but it is similar in that we can still, he did leave us something of his word in order to listen to him. Now, I think this is important. I'll just share something with you. And I don't know where you're all at in your emotional stability these days, or the last decade for that matter. But I'll share something that will probably surprise many of you. Um, I want to talk to you about the list, the, how important listening to the, the word of the Lord is and spending time with him in that way. Um, I've battled depression for 10 years in a pretty strong way. Uh, 15, but uh, 10, and 10 probably severely. And it has not left being in the ministry. So could you imagine, think of your worst days. If, you've, if those of you who suffer from depression, think of your worst days and then you have to get up and then face a congregation, stand up here and preach from the word of God and uh, pretend like everything's okay for the sake of the church. Not pretend, but you, you have a job to do and you have to move forward. The flesh says, stay home, stay asleep, stay away from people. But God says, no, I got a job for you to do. Get out there and do it, right? So depression has been uh, something I've had to work through my whole life. Well, actually, it's actually the last 15 years, but especially the last 10. But here's the key. Depression, when, if you're depressed or suffer from depression, it's because you believe lies. Depression is to believe lies. And the only victory that I've ever found where I can actually get through periods of depression is to spend time in the Word of God. It's the only victory. And the reason why is because the Word of God is truth and Satan is the one of deception. So as I spend time listening to the words of Jesus, it gets the, the lies out of my head and replaces it with truth. 
And there's always time of encouragement and time of victory in the scriptures. So when I, so what gets me through day to day in those severe times of depression are the word of God. And there's a direct correlation between me getting out of the funk and my time in scripture and going into depression and being out of scripture. So those of you who might can relate to me, you will not get out of depression and through your cycles by simply wishing it away or sleeping it away or eating it away or whatever habits we go to outside of scriptures. The only way to battle depression is through truth and you have to be like Lazarus and you have to have to spend time <laughs> listening to him. And you may not, you're not going to feel like reading the word of God in depression. Just like I don't feel like coming to church and speaking to you on a Sunday morning. But I never leave here after I've spoken to you feeling worse than I did when I walked in. And I never feel discouraged after spending time with God when I leave, when I'm in a depressed state. So all I'm saying to you is that if you can relate to Lazarus and you can relate to me in those ways, then you know how important listening to the Word of God is and how that's an expression of showing love to the Lord. The second response comes from Martha. She didn't do what Lazarus did. She didn't choose to listen to Jesus in a way of showing devotion to him. She chose to serve him. Look in verse 2. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. You know, Martha's actions are often overshadowed by Mary in this passage. When you listen to pastors preach on this, they go on about Mary for 40 minutes, and, Mary, and Lazarus and Martha for five Right? She gets the, the, big, um, the big hurrah, the big thumbs up. Uh, she's the main person people focus on. But what's interesting is that when you look at her willingness to show love for Christ by serving him on this occasion, Jesus doesn't rebuke her. And her actions were no less commend, com, commendable or pleasing to Jesus than what Mary did. That's important because in the previous dinners that they, the previous dinner they had back in Luke chapter 10, that night when she served, supper didn't go well for her. Remember? She, suffered, she was complaining that Mary was doing nothing and she was doing everything. And her service to Jesus came with a desire to be noticed and to be, for, for, God, for Jesus to weigh in and say, why aren't you doing anything because I'm all alone in my serving of you? Isn't this important to you? And so Jesus had to rebuke her. And here we see Martha serving going back to that which she loved and going back to the, that which she knew best, what, the way she was wired was to serve. And Jesus now understands that she's got it right this time and she, he doesn't rebuke her in it. Now this takes on more significance if you think of it this way. If this was indeed at Simon Leper's house, she's not, it makes sense if you serve as a host. Name anybody here who hosts dinner and doesn't serve your guests. But how many of you take the, the primary role of service in someone else's home See, now you're like Mar Mar Martha if you do that. If they're at Simon Leper's house and she's taking charge, and she's, the, and she's the main person for 16 guests at minimum, this shows you how, much import how important service is to her as an expression to God for what he's done for her. You know, re the reality was that ser serving Martha, or Martha being a servant, was what she knew best. I mean, she was a, she was a pardon the joke, but she was a doer, not a Roger or Bethany. <laughs> But a, uh, but a doer, right? right? So in order for her to be... <laughs> Thanks, Janice, for laughing. Yeah. <laughs> Mercy laugh. <laughs> pray for me, pray for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We are all laughing inside. Yeah, totally. Some are groaning. 
But anyway, for her, that's what she knew what to do. That's how she expressed love for him. And her best way to show him honor and express love for him was just to serve. Didn't matter if it was in her home or someone else's home, it was to serve. And it was fully embraced by Jesus. And he didn't say to Martha, by the way, you got it wrong. You need to be doing what Mary's doing. Didn't say that. Or Martha, you got it wrong. You need to be doing what Lazarus is doing. He allowed her the freedom to love the way she wanted to love. I think we can learn from Martha. See, some of us are naturally like her. If I were to ask you in the church today to say, do you know, in this congregation alone, when you, who's the first person that comes to your mind when you think of being, having a servant heart? Or serve? Certain names will come before others. Right? Or, right? So you basically, and, and I don't name, don't name them out loud. Or even just without our church, name people that you know that are, have servant hearts and, that you know. And you think, why did those names come forward and not others? Because they're wired like Martha, to show love and devotion to Christ is in that way. Now, some of us can relate to her because we're naturally wired that way. So that's a great way of expressing it. But I don't want you to miss this, that servitude, or being a servant, is something that's an extremely important Christian virtue that God desires all of us to have. All of us, he wants to be a servant. And there's no exceptions to this. We are all to be engaged in selfless service. I want you to look at Galatians. I should say, um, I think that should be 5.13, not 4.13. It's either 4.13 or 5.13. And if I made a mistake, then uh, you can correct it. But it says, you, my brothers and sisters. So again, this is everybody. You are called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. So the way to love your neighbor as yourself is to serve one another within the Christian community. It's 5.13. 5.13? Okay, great. Thank you. So my notes say 5.13. My PowerPoint says 4.13. So there you go. Blame the IT guy. Yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> now, the great thing about this is that Jesus was never going to ask us something that he was not willing to do himself. Right? He's not going to ask you and I to do something. He's not willing to do himself. Consider Matthew 20, verse 28. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. That's why in John chapter 13, he had to model it to the disciples. We're going to come to this. But he starts at the Last Supper, on the night of the Passover, he starts washing all their feet. He starts washing all their feet. And Peter is astounded by Jesus' actions. We're going to get into this later with Mary. But he decides to show them that nothing is beneath him as, as the Messiah. He'll take the lowest of jobs to serve one another to show love. And ultimately, his love was expressed through laying down his life on the cross. I love what Witherington said about this. I'm going to paraphrase him because it didn't work with just his normal wording in his book. But to, uh, being free in Christ is to be free to take a lower place and to free, be free to humble oneself to serve. So being free in Christ allows you to be free to serve others. So if your heart's wired like Martha to serve, and that's how you want to show God's love, keep on going. Or if you want to serve, but you just don't know how and where, then I'd be glad to have a conversation with you because I can give you some practical ways in which we could use service within our church. 
And I'm, I'm sure you can figure it out outside of our church, but if you want to serve even within Genesis House, I can tell you practical areas that we always need help in and would love to be served in. So if you're, so if you're looking to be a Martha but just don't know how, please talk to me. However, if you're the kind of person that expects to be served, if you're the kind of person that sort of sits on their bum with your hands under your, your lap, and you expect to be served, then I hope this kicks you in the butt a little. If you were a disciple that day, Jesus would have said, let me model to you what, how I want you to change your life. And Galatians 5.13 says, you fulfill the law to love your neighbor when you take that attitude. So we're all called to be servants, and we're all called to be Martha. For some of us, it'll just be more natural than others. Let's look at the third response, and the final response for today. How did Mary choose, choose to demonstrate her gratefulness to Jesus? She didn't do it through listening, didn't do it through serving, she did it through a form of worship. Verse 3. Mary then took a pound of costly perfume, very costly perfume, of pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. You know, there are different ways in which we can worship Jesus. But Mary's worship, the way she showed it, was through a demonstration of personal sacrifice. And I'm going to show you two ways in which she made a personal sacrifice. One was financial, and one was in their reputation. So write that down if you'll take notes. Her sacrifice was in financially shown and reputationally shown. Let's look at the financial hit that she took and the sacrifice in her worship. This uh, pound of very costly perfume of pure nard, um, according to the commentators I was reading, didn't originate in Israel. Uh, pure nard was, was a herb that was found apparently from the mountains of the India, and some said China, but, but unanimously it came from India. Now, so therefore, in those days, there was no pure later, unless they put a sign on a camel's uh, hump, <laughs> or UPS, whatever. Um, but the, because it had to travel from India to Israel, that makes it automatically extremely valuable because it comes from these mountains and it has to go a long distance. So this makes it, it valuable. But with, even without that little extra biblical de- or non-biblical detail, we can tell it was extremely uh, valuable by Judas's comments in verse 4. Because he says this perfume was worth 300 denarii. 300 denarii. Now, one denarii was one day's wages. So think about this, all of you, just to those of you who are working right now. How much do you make a day? Don't yell it out. Um, um, but how much do you make a day on average? And then multiply that by 300. Okay? Or what's your yearly, because we have about 65 days off a year, that's one year, that's one year salary. So think of it in one year salary, what do you make? What do you make? That's how much this value of this perfume was worth to Mary. So if that's 40,000, 50,000, 60,000, 100,000, gives you a huge understanding of the value of this. So she, when she chose to give this, show, uh, break this perfume bottle and, sp- and spread it over Jesus' body and over his feet, this particularly in chapter John, or chapter John, in John, um, 
we can see that this was a hit that she was a financial hit that she had to take. So why use such expensive oil? Well, um, in the, in that culture, it could be women could use it for personal use to smell better. It could be used in festive occasions, like uh, if you're having a celebration and whatnot. But interestingly enough, it was also used for funerals. Remember, there was no embalming in that culture, so you had to use really fragrant, great-smelling oils that could overpower this, the smell of death and decay of a body. And we know this was an incredibly powerful perfume and oil because of, it said it filled the whole house. So not just one room, it, it just completely spread from room to room to room, however big their house was. Now, the only problem kind of within the text, though, is that... Um, if that was used for funerals, from her point of view, for family members, why didn't she use it on Lazarus? <laughs> why didn't she use it on Lazarus? That's just something you have to think about. Unless, of course, she had two bottles, and she did use it on Lazarus, but this one was for Jesus. But here's the key you want to remember from her financial hit. She refused to offer Jesus, which was her Savior, something that was of no value to her and no, no cost to her. She wasn't willing to offer him something that was of, of nothing, of, of meaning, meaningless. She, was, she understood that if she was going to be generous to him, she had to take a hit financially. And she demonstrated by breaking this vial over him that there, she had no attachment to money. She had no attachment to money if she was going to do this. The other way she took, she showed her worship and personal sacrifice was through her reputation. It may not be seen as clearly at first, but I want to help you understand this. You notice that here that she wiped his feet with her hair. The fact that she wiped his feet and used her hair are two, two aspects you have to understand through the Jewish culture to know how much this would have meant. Because both actions demonstrated a total, unrestrained, sacrificial love with no concern for personal reputation. No concern for personal reputation. You know, the Jews considered washing the feet of another person a degrading job. Uh, to wash the feet was something that was only to be done by slaves. It was disgusting. Think about it. Like, it was a 40-degree climate, dusty climate, barren. Uh, they were on their feet all day long. They would have, they would have been, you know, their feet would have been hot. They would have been dirty. They would have been stinky. Uh, this is a job you just wouldn't have wanted to do. It was reserved for slaves. Again, this is why Jesus' actions in John 13 on the night of the Passover astounded Peter. I mean, you know, the, you know it, right? Because they all came in for dinner. They all were desperately in need of a feet washing, and none of the disciples offered to serve each other in that way. No one offered to wash each other's feet. Nobody even offered to wipe Christ's feet down. And Jesus takes the lowliest position that night in order to teach the disciples a lesson, a lesson on selfless humility. And he was teaching them that a genuine disciple of Christ will serve at all costs, even if it means taking the lowliest of positions. And an important quality for these men to have, because in two months, like literally in two months, they were going to be leaders of the church. <laughs> In Acts, we see them take leadership positions. Man, they better get this right. They better understand this right now as leaders, that they need to be servants, and they need to be willing to take lowly positions, even though they had places of authority in the church. But see, Mary was already proven to be more mature than the disciples. 
and further along in her spiritual walk in many ways, she understood what they failed not to understand, or yeah, she understood what they failed to. And so the truth was that she loved Jesus a lot. I mean, he just raised her brother. Yet her reputation meant nothing, nothing in comparison to love for Jesus. And we don't know if she would have taken ridicule from the other people that day for doing that. I mean, Jesus, like I said, Peter was astounded, saying, what are you doing, God? Like, what are you doing when you're wiping my feet? Who knows what they would have thought about Mary when she went to do that. But secondly, she used her hair. In Jewish culture, uh, women kept their hair up. They only would let their hair down in the privacy of their home for their husband. So to let your hair down in public as a Jewish woman was to basically show, you, show that you had loose morals, that you were available to other men, and it was like a public form of indecency. But again, Mary is not concerned with the ridicule that she may, would have, may have had to face and the shame that she would have brought on herself by doing this. Her sole focus was to show Jesus her devotion to him, despite what others may have thought of her that day. Now, there's two huge lessons in there for us. Let me ask you a question, and the question goes for myself, too. I'm not off the hook. How lavish is your and mine sacrificial love for Christ in the area of finances and the area of personal reputation? Has our love for Christ substantially affected our pocketbook in the area of generosity towards Jesus Christ and furthering his kingdom? Have we taken financial hits to show him we love him? Are we willing to be generous to, 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 to um, show that we have this reflected relationship with him? Are we readily willing to give things away to others that are of great value to us in order to show our love for Christ? How about a reputation? You know, for many of us, because we're rich, let's be honest, we're all rich in comparison to the rest of the world. And I think it's a, we, we love writing checks because writing a check is easy. We can do that. But it's not as easy to be publicly shamed for the sake of Christ. Are we willing to risk humiliation for the name of Jesus Christ in conversation? She's willing, Mary's willing to do acts that are publicly known to bring shame on her. The way to bring shame on yourself in this culture is to proclaim the name of Christ being the only way to salvation. You want to get humiliated? You want to get embarrassed or potentially uh, rejected? You go down that path in this culture. So do, are we willing to let our own reputation take a hit for the sake of Jesus Christ, to show our love and devotion to him? Or are we scared of engaging because of what others might think of us, and so therefore Satan has rendered us useless in this apartment? There's lots to be learned from Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. But here's what I want to uh, sort of summarize and leave you with in these responses. You see, we already know from John chapter 11 that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus deeply loved Jesus, and we know that he deeply loved them. They had this close, close relationship. But what was cool is all three chose to show their love for him in different ways. Yet all of them were acceptable to Christ, and he didn't rebuke any of them for the way they loved one another, or loved him, I should say. They were all right actions in Jesus' mind. 
And I say this because I fear in the Christian community that sometimes we often look down on a person if they don't operate the same way we do. What if someone's serving, 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 and you as a server maybe even look and go, man, I wish people would help me, right? But that person's chosen to maybe, uh, well, that person is showing more of a merry relationship where they're sacrificially giving and they're, and they're constantly putting their reputation on the line. Right? So we, can't, we have to be careful in terms of how we operate with one another and how we look upon one another if, we, if someone's not expressing love to Jesus the way we want them to. Jesus didn't rebuke them all. They were all right. right? He didn't say to Martha, you need to be doing what Mary is doing. He didn't say to Mary, you need to be doing what Lazarus is doing. They were all acceptable to him. So those are the three positive responses to Jesus Christ and the reactions to him. And I'll leave uh, the two negative ones from Judas and the religious leaderships for next week. And I just want to go through these lessons here with you. So the first lesson is that there's three for today. Is listening, serving, and worshiping Jesus are all equal ways for believers to express their love for him. I mean, I've made that clear over and over, I think, through the passage today. Again, Jesus didn't judge one as better than the other or worse than the other. He embraced them all. And I think that's an important lesson for us to understand. Secondly, followers of Jesus are to be known as generous people as a reflection of their devotion to him. Again, has Jesus affected your pocketbook? Has he affected my pocketbook? I'm not talking about going into Walmart and there's a Salvation Army guy there ringing a bell and you throw two quarters in there. That's not generous. Secondly, that's not promoting the kingdom of God. I'm talking about substantial ways where you took a hit financially for the sake of showing love to him by furthering his kingdom or showing that you love him in, in, a, in a personal relationship. I think, I think of the Corinthian churches. Um, you think about culturally what they're doing here. These are Gentile people expressing love to Jewish people within, who are all brethren. So it's all within the Christian community, but what's interesting is these are Gentile people showing love for the Jewish people, which is, un, that's like, a, you know, that would be like Muslims converting to Christ and living within our community who are isolated from us, and then we as, as Genesis House show financial love towards them and embrace them as fellow Christians. I mean, that's the cultural divide you have. But listen to, the, to, listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians 8 about these guys. He says, uh, we, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given to the churches of Macedonia, that in greater deal of affliction their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave to their own accord, begging us with much urgency for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. Again, the saints are in Jerusalem. So they're, they're, they're just, they're all in to try to take care, to be generous to the Jewish Christians who are suffering from a, a famine in, uh, in Jerusalem. That's the context. Again, um, we are to be known as generous people. First Timothy I believe it's chapter 6, verse 17. He says, instruct, instruct those who are rich in this world to be generous. If you see, we see, um, yeah, well, I'll leave it at that. And the final lesson for today, lesson three, is genuine Christians will be willing, will be willing to put their personal relationships on the line for the sake of Jesus Christ. 
Genuine Christians will be willing to put their personal reputation on the line for the sake of Jesus Christ. Again, this is the hardest one for me because I'd rather write a check than lose face. <laughs> but remember, they're not rejecting you or me. They're rejecting Jesus. Jesus talks about this. If the world hates you, it's because you have account of me. You and I, if we, apart from Jesus Christ, wouldn't be hated. We wouldn't be rejected because we would be agreeing with everything they're saying or we'd stay silent because it wouldn't matter because we wouldn't want to rock the boat. But as a Christian, as soon as you stand up for Jesus Christ, you're identifying with him. And so therefore they're responding to you because they hate Jesus, not because they hate you. But the problem is when we take, we take on, um, when we get into these conversations and we put a reputation on the line, we take it very personally, as opposed to thinking they just hated Christ but not me. <laughs> That's why when the, the, the apostles were in Acts were, were flogged and persecuted for the name of Christ, they came out and rejoiced because they were persecuted for the name of Jesus. If we can get the focus, and Satan's good at this, if we get the focus off of ourselves and off of our reputation, and think about what he's done for us and how much he loves us, then we might be able to put our personal reputations on the line like Mary in the public setting more and more and more. So I don't know which one you identify with more today. If you feel like you're more of a Lazarus, more of a Martha, or more of a Mary. But I just pray that the Word of God encourage you today or challenge you today. And I'm looking forward to our conversation now.